Well, Warren, it's clear Kevin has nothing to do over the next several weeks, okay? Uh, hi again, everybody. It's Jungle Jim Jerome coming at you with another episode, number three uh, in the schedule of our new season. And uh, we really appreciate everyone listening. Kev, where are you now, Kev? Did we catch you like for about five minutes before you go to another event or what? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm actually, I'm at home. I flew home from the Masters and uh, I'm home till... Uh Till uh, the middle of this week and shoot to uh, to Eveleth, uh, Minnesota for the USA Mixed Doubles Trials um, that we do for NBC. So uh, real exciting, and then come back and uh, and go to Chestermere for uh, for the Boost National on Sportsnet. So yeah, it's it's a busy time and it's a wonderful time for curling and lots to talk about. And we're going to do that on today's show. So strap in, everybody. Coming up on Inside Curling, bunch of stuff we got to talk about. Last Rock. Eighth end, up by two. She got it. I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. it's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, then. Don't kill it. Line's really good. Line's good. Right on the button, guys. Right here. Last stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Here we go. So many things to talk about. It was great watching curling uh, all weekend. I couldn't. Uh, here's what happened, Warren, Kev. Uh, so I had to be out of the house when the uh, when the final was on, okay, in the men's. And uh, earlier in the day, uh, Tracy Flurry, congratulations to her. Uh, she's going to be our guest coming up today. Uh, so I, I taped it, okay, Kev. I hit the PVR button to record. I'm taping it, watching the whole thing, getting to the final end, the eighth end, and uh, it's kind of going, falling apart. And I know you're going to talk about that for, for Jacobs. And then the recording stopped just at the start <laughs> of, the, of the eighth end. So I was madly trying to figure out what happened. But, of course, Moet won that thing. Uh, on the show today, we're going to talk about a lot of things. It was the first Grand Slam of the year, uh, the Masters, which was in uh, Oakville. Also, what's coming up in the weeks ahead, the America's Challenge in Lacombe. The Canadian Olympic pre-trials, uh, of course, is in Nova Scotia that we've heard about. And the U.S. Mixed Doubles, Kevin, you're on your way down there. We want to talk about that. One of our other segments, Hot Rock Topics, that we're going to keep doing each and every week. Unfortunately, uh, it's the start of the curling season, but we're already hearing about a bunch of clubs. Or not a bunch, but some that are closing. Warren's going to bring us up to speed on that. And as I just mentioned, Tracy Flurry, your Masters champions. Back-to-back, Kevin, right? Back-to-back Masters, absolutely. Closing segment for the shows is going to be story time. We love this idea. And, of course, Warren's got all sorts of stuff. Uh, and you've got a book coming out, Warren, Sticks and Stones. We're going to ask you about that, which has a lot to do with the Olympics. And, of course, that's coming up. So thanks a lot uh, to all our sponsors, Meridian uh, Manufacturing, Nestle Boost, Goldline Curling Equipment, Sports Interaction, and Coyote Tractor. So what's happening around the curling world is brought to you by Sports Interaction, providing competitive odds on all sports. Sports Interaction is Canada's odds maker, 19 plus responsibility. Like I told you, uh, we're, we're well over that, fellas, so we'll be okay. What is happening around the curling world, uh, Kevin? It was another great week. 
and the first slam event. Give us your thoughts on the whole thing. Well, yeah, that's the biggest thing, obviously, is coming off of a, a Grand Slam championship. And that week, I'll tell you what, that week had a bit of everything. You've got a great start to the week. The weather was nice. The ice was good. It's excellent. There's all this excitement. The teams are excited to be back in a building with some fans and all of that. And then rain. Like, I mean, it was a monsoon in Toronto. Tons of rain. And of course, with that, when you talk about curling, is you talk about frost. So then the ice got really tough for the curlers in like mid to late week. Tons of rain, so tons of frost, lots of misses. The teams are having a heck of a time. And then we wake up on either Friday morning or Saturday morning, and beautiful sunshine. And everybody, of course, that watched on the weekend, the ice was 15 seconds, lovely. Shots being made like crazy. So we got to, to enjoy kind of a bit of everything. And in that final game on the ladies' side, you use the no-tick zone. That was a rule for the eighth end and any extra ends in this particular event. And coming home, you've got Jennifer Jones. Of course, everybody everybody knows Jennifer playing against Tracy Fleury. Jennifer's one down without, but there's a few misses. And of course, there's lots of rocks on the center line. And in the end, Tracy's got to try a, a really tough chip. She can see about a, a third of the rock with her intern, and she puts it out wide and oh, oh she's gonna lose the game there were two rocks in the forefoot for jones she had to get one of them out or else the game's over and uh the third for tracy flurry's team selena negevin just well made a call of the uh, of the year if not in the last 10 years by instead of hoping that the rock will curl a bit she actually had the sweepers get on it have it run straight and they chip off a side guard to knock out one of the rocks in the forefoot to go an extra end and in the end of course tracy flurry wins the uh, her second straight masters on the men's side there's this freight train his name's bruce mowat that uh ends up playing Brad Jacobs in the final. Brad Jacobs has an open hit, just hit and stay in seventh to go up to going home. Jacobs rolls out. I talked to Mark Kennedy actually at the airport on the way home from the event. And I said, Mark, like Mike Harris and I both, as soon as Brad put that broom down, we both cringe going like, that's too much ice. And Mark said, you know what? I think so too. He thought it, but he didn't want to up, you know, didn't want to interrupt the skipper on such an important shot. Brad threw it perfect and it rolled out. It was just a little bit too much ice. So then they're only one up going home and Bruce Mowat and his uh, Scottish foursome pick up the two points and, and, and win their third consecutive Grand Slam. So I'll tell you what, from a entertainment point of view, you just couldn't dream of two better curling games than what was in Oakville, Ontario, in the Masters Finals. In that final end with uh, Moat and Jacobs, they were playing the no-tick rule, which I think it worked pretty good from my observation. There was two rucks uh, that were sitting on that center line. And through maybe misfortune, maybe questionable call, all of a sudden, Moat's sitting two in the circles. They're in the 12-foot, but they're in the circles. And I thought at that point in time, that was when Brad Jacobs should have turned absolutely offensive rather than defensive. He was, I think, seconds last stones and start to come around the center or at least try to build another tight guard. Uh, what are your thoughts with regard to his decisions in that end? Yeah, well, you know, especially in maybe seconds last one, EJ's last one or... or uh or maybe Mark's first, because uh, at that point, uh, Bruce Mowat had a rock on both sides in the 12 foot. So if you throw a tight guard around the guards, there's already a center guard. So you could have tucked another one in there. 
I don't know how Bruce would have dealt with it because he couldn't really afford to play any kind of peel because you could easily knock out one of his own rocks and then Brad would knock out the open one and there you go, the force is on. So I think Bruce would have had to come around the middle and just forget about his two uh, snibblers on the sides. And therefore, now you got Brad playing to the middle, which is what they wanted without Hammer. So I was a bit surprised too, Warren. They ended up playing around the corners all end, right to the bitter end, if you want to call it, for, for Brad Jacobs. So I agree with you. I don't know why they didn't go close to the house. I did not talk to Mark uh, Kennedy about that, but why they didn't play a tight center on either EJ's last or, or Mark's first. You're, you're right. And I guess we'll have to see why. We'll have to talk to Mark about it at some point. I think to some degree it's maybe going to have to be a, a switch in, in your vision when it comes down to the last end with this no-tick situation. And the fact that how you play the 10th end when you're one up without the hammer is, or 8th end is going to probably change somewhat, I think, as a result of that rule being in place. And I think maybe, in my opinion, they probably maybe got caught a little bit in between, maybe thinking the way they would have done it before this rule and not really thinking about how to do it this with this rule. What do you think? Yeah, well, you know what, and that's all part of the sport. When you make rule changes, it doesn't matter what sport, any sport, if rules change, then teams have to evolve for the strategy, depending on what the rule is. So you're right, Warren, there's no question when this is brought in, which I think it will be, it makes so much sense to me to, uh, to not allow ticks late in the game or even all game. And then, of course, when that happens then strategy changes. But that's okay. That's It's all natural. No difference when the three-rock three, three rock rule came in, and then no different when the four-rock rule came in, and then the five-rock rule. And if you don't have ticks, fine. It doesn't matter. The the cream will c- continue to rise to the top. We just want more offense in the game. And But you're right. Teams are going to have to learn to deal with the rules in play, no matter what. What's your overall take, Kev? You were there all week, of course. Um you know, it's the start of the season. Do you see teams playing their best or do you see them with a bunch of rust maybe that needs to be chipped off as they move forward in the season? Well, it's funny, you know, we talked last week about uh, my picks who are going to win this, win the event in the Masters. And I felt it was going to be Canadian teams because of how much work they've been putting in with practice to get ready for the Olympic trials. And, and I called it for uh, Jennifer Jones to win. Well, she came close and called it for uh, either Brad Jacobs or Brendan Botcher to win. Uh, and then you forced me into saying which one, and I said, "Well, Jacobs." But uh, that's what I felt, and uh, once again, close. But uh, at darn Mowat. I but I did mention there's this Mowat guy that nobody can seem to stop. But I think that the teams that are working the hardest are coming to the top. You can see it in the case of Jennifer Jones. It's almost time for the Olympic trials, and that's why I thought she'd do well. Actually, Mark Kennedy mentioned that to me at the airport last night. He said, how did you pick Jennifer Jones to win that event? She hadn't won in a long time. I said, well, actually, she hadn't won in four years. She got to a final in 2019, but hasn't won a big event in four years. But it's Jennifer Jones. She's, in my opinion, the best lady curler in the history of our sport. And when it comes to trying to make it to the Olympics, guess who will be there? Jennifer Jones will be there when it comes right down to push and shove at the trials. You had mentioned a couple of times uh, earlier about uh, strategy when talking about Jacobs and uh, all this thing about thinking time. And I said, I, I, I got to ask Kevin, who is the best strategist in the game today, Kevin? Who's the, who's the best thinker? Well, there's lots of good ones. Kevin Cooey's fantastic, but I've got to give that to either Brad Gushu on the men's side or Jennifer Jones on the women's side. Both are super smart. Uh, now, there's lots of really, really smart and cerebral people. But that's who I would give it to as far as uh, the top in, in, in the game. Let's uh, get your uh, thoughts, Kev, on what's happening uh, for the America's Challenge in Lacombe. 
Yes, my mom and dad are super excited. It's in Lacombe, uh, Alberta, not too far from Edmonton. And uh, three teams, it's Team Botcher and Team Mexico and Team Brazil. And whoever wins, that country has the right to go to the World Championships. So not a lot different than in the bubble when uh, Team Botcher had to get into the top six to guarantee Canada a spot in the Olympics. They're put in the same situation in this case in uh, in the Americans challenge to win against Mexico and Brazil. And that's happening this weekend coming up in Lacombe. It ends early on Sunday. And like I say, my mom and dad only live a couple hours away. So they're super stoked to uh, to go and watch live curling in, in Lacombe. Yeah, interesting enough, the Mexican team, Rami indicated to us that uh, their nationals, their Mexican team, uh, reside in Canada and the United States and practice at the local clubs in the areas where they live. Um, it's kind of interesting. He said they have 12 curlers in their federation. And the only way we can grow as a federation in the near future is to find more existing curlers that are eligible to represent Mexico that probably aren't living in Mexico because there really isn't an opportunity at this stage for them to, to play in Mexico. I think there's a couple of things maybe potentially going to happen in the near future, but uh, it seems to be rather vague. Rami was very clear to express to us as well that he does not speak on behalf of the Mexican Curling Federation, but uh, pretty much as an individual, and he's going to be part of the team that's representing Mexico in that playoff in Lacombe. So very much in the embryo stage as far as curling in Mexico. I think Brazil is pretty much the same. By my memory, the four players from the Brazilian team that's uh, been doing this now for a few years, they're in Montreal. As time goes on, and these... Uh, New countries uh, that are entering into World Federation, it will slowly but surely start. And that's uh, even countries like Japan and New Zealand, uh, Australia. It started in a similar way there. And I think uh, as time moves on, it'll start to grow. Uh, Warren, let's go over to the Olympic trials uh, happening in Liverpool, Nova Scotia. Well, Jim, it's pre-trials, not the Olympic trials. Sorry. I tried to talk to you last week about this. I said, Hanson, what's how are you doing this? And you said, well, it's a pre-trial, pre-trial. It's a pre-pre-trial. Let's just summarize where this whole thing sits. So the trials are going to take place in Saskatoon towards the end of November. And we've already qualified seven men's teams and seven women's teams out of the nine. And what's going on in Liverpool, Nova Scotia at the moment is they are attempting to qualify two more men's teams and two more women's teams. And to do that, they have 14 teams there of uh, men and 14 of women. The way this playoff is working is they have divided them into two pools, seven in each pool. They're going to play a round robin. And once the round robin is completed, there will be three teams from each pool advanced to the playoffs. A little bit confusing how that whole thing works. If you are in the one-two position, it's sort of a double knockout for you to get a, a spot in the trials. And if in your third position, you have one chance uh, to get that final spot. So it's a little different type of playoff. But in the end, uh, I think the teams to probably watch, in my opinion, um, on the men's side, I would think uh, Howard Flash and Gunlinson would be the teams with the best chance of uh, coming out of that whole thing. Some of the younger teams in there, Calvert, Tardy, Sturme, Hardy, I think they'll all do fairly well. But I would think in the end, probably the, the old veterans will prevail. On the women's side, I kind of look at Holly Duncan, Corinne Brown, maybe Susan Burt, Krista McCarville. There's a team to watch. That McCarville team has been very good for a long time, but they haven't played a lot because of their situation with life. They have jobs, they have families, and they're not able to tour. But they are a good team and they've done well at the Scotties many times, so they could be one to watch. So that's sort of how I see that whole situation at the moment. I think it concludes next Sunday. Kev, uh, 
going into this, for example, if you were a curler in your in your skip on a squad, are you curling a bunch, Kevin, going into the Olympic trials, or do you have to try? There's so much curling right for these teams now. Do you kind of have to balance and Kev and 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 play maybe a little less or or a little more? What would you right? Do? I, and I think people look at it different ways. Um, Brad Gushu at present has played. I'd like to say about 11 games, maybe 12 games a season total. Other teams have played six events, so they'd be in the 30 to 40 game range. So I think it's totally up to the team how they feel they will peak at the trials on how they strategize. Now, some are going to strategize incorrectly. They're going to think, well, we got to do this. And then in the end, they're too either too tired or not quite ready because they haven't played enough at the trials. It's really up to each individual team. Um, so I don't think there's a magic elixir to that, but it's something that every team would have talked about in the summertime and over the last year to try to be as ready as possible when the puck drops at the Olympic trials. To me, I would say you don't, don't overplay. I would say play, you know, four or five events, uh, prior to the trials, make sure you're well rested, mentally sharp because the trials is a really taxing week because every game is so difficult. And there's high stress. So, you know, be physically ready, be mentally ready and well-rested, and you'll have a chance. Uh, speaking of trials, you're on your way to uh, Minnesota for the U.S. Mixed Doubles Trials. Yeah, the Mixed Doubles uh, U.S. Trials. Um, we did them four years ago in, uh, in, in Blaine. And now this year, they're in a place called Eveleth, not too far from Duluth. I'll fly into Minneapolis, and it's about a three-hour drive. But... It's going to be a really, really good event. It starts uh, early in this week, and actually the games are all being streamed by the U.S. Curling Association to start the week, and then NBC and uh, we'll move in on the weekend for the playoffs. The uh, Saturday-Sunday have the 1-2 game, 3-4, and then the semifinal-final on Sunday. Main teams, you know, you've obviously got to look at the Olympic champion, John Schuster with uh, Corey Christensen. Uh, don't forget about the Hamiltons, who actually represented the U.S. in the last Olympics, Matt and Becca. Um, I've kind of got those two teams as the top two, but but you've got Sarah Anderson and Corey Dropkin, probably the most fit curler. Chris Plies, of course, a fantastic curler with... Uh, with Perzinger, you've got Tabitha Peterson, who's turning out to be one of the top lady curlers, with Joe Polo, who's a terrific mixed doublers player. I've got those guys as your top five. A couple of young teams that I'm going to keep a real good eye on, and that's Eileen Geving with the young Luke Violet and young Madison Bear with Andrew Stapira. Those, those two guys played junior together. Very young, so I don't expect them to win because of their age but super good. And Rich Runin, of course, uh, the old guy in the field uh, with Jamie Sinclair. The worry, like As far as shooting goes, you've got to look at that team as having a chance, but who's the sweeper? So that's kind of interesting uh, when you look at that pair, but I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a terrific uh, U.S. trials as far as mixed doubles, and their men's and women's trials actually go in the middle of November just before the uh, men's and women's trials in Canada. So, of course, we'll talk about that a little more, Jimmy, when we get uh, we get close to that. That's in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, in a few weeks. So, interesting situation, however, that what's going to happen here is the fact that the United States hasn't qualified yet for the Olympics. 
And so the team that does win out of uh, this playoff taking place this week is going to have to journey over to Europe, I believe, the Netherlands in December to go into a playoff to get one of the final two spots. The fact that there's eight teams or eight countries have already qualified, China, Great Britain, Norway, Sweden, Canada, Italy, Switzerland, and Czech Republic. So the team that does win out of the U.S. has got a bit of a, a battle ahead of them. We don't know yet for sure how many other countries are going to be in that playoff that's going to play, take place in the Netherlands. But uh, I think certainly, as Kevin's mentioned, I agree with him on the on the picks that he thinks are the best teams. And they've had some very good mixed doubles performance at the world level before. Uh, particular Tabitha Peterson and Joe Polo have done quite well. So I think whoever comes out of that is going to have a, a really good chance of grabbing one of those last two spots. You mentioned all those names of teams in the States, Kevin. Sounds like there's great parity in mixed doubles these days. So it's not, it's not never an easy walk for Canada, is it? <laughs> not anymore in anything. No, there's great depth in the U.S. mixed doubles crew. There's got to be at least, like, you know, I, I, I kind of went in the role of sort of my favorites kind of thing. But there's not much difference between number one and number eight in uh, in the U.S. right now in mixed doubles. It's It's fantastic for the sport right on well we'll have to see what the result is uh you're going to be there this week uh that is what we call what's happening around the world in curling and we want to thank uh, sports interaction uh for bringing us that segment next hot rock topics brought to you by coyote tractor thank you very much uh to those guys for jumping on board coyote tractor proud partner of team brad jacobs and the grand slam of curling coyote we dig dirt uh, let's get going on this, uh, Warren. What's happening here um, with the 22 season following virtually a year lost to COVID? The word is, again, a number of clubs are having trouble uh, opening their doors. This is kind of getting sad and worrisome, Warren. Well, I think it has been for some time, and it just keeps happening. And certainly COVID has had a huge impact, I think, on a lot of the clubs that were kind of teetering. And I, I know of more than one that's having some issues uh, getting things up and running. Most of them have made it, but there has been a few that hasn't. One that's uh, quite sad from my point of view is the Charlottetown Curling Club. That's a very historic building that practically every player of any consequence has ever come out of PEI has played out of that club. And as a matter of fact, that club has hosted within its doors every Canadian championship except the Briar. So I think that's another first. Uh, I don't think any other club in Canada can play claim that and apparently they will not be able to open they've got a chiller problem and uh, they simply can't afford to spend the money that's going to be involved to to make that happen uh, they are however looking at some options they own the property they own the building i think they're looking at potentially selling the property and relocating maybe jointly with another club or doing something new and different but i think it's sad to see that that club is uh, is not going to open its doors I think as well should maybe just take a look at PEI as, as an example. So there was at one time 11 clubs in PEI. They're now down to five with the loss of the Charlottetown Club. So I think that's uh, that's not good. Another club that uh, I'm also close to, I did clinics many years in the Charlottetown Curling Club, but so did this other club, the Bayview Country Club in Toronto, which is a joint facility, golf and curling. But uh, had a very strong curling section for years. And again, we did clinics in that club on more than one occasion. Allison Goring, who won the Scotties in 1990, came out of that club. And certainly, I think most people in the curling world remember Allison. Unfortunately, their curling section at the Bayview Club is no longer going to be operating as well. 
So I'm sure there's more. I've heard a couple of rumors uh, from different parts of the nation. I, I invite anybody, if you've got a story to tell us about your club and what the situation is, we'd be really pleased to hear it. But, but I think, again, this is an ongoing problem. This didn't just start to happen, it, and it's continuing. And I sure wish that uh, the powers that be would get everybody in a room and start to talk about this as to how this avalanche can be stopped and what needs to be done to probably regenerate uh, the, the sport in a lot of these different areas. I look upon this again as very much the provincial associations are the one that this has got to be their main responsibility. This really isn't Curling Canada's job. They can help, they can assist, but I think the provincial groups are the ones that are going to take the bull by the horns and start to deal with this a little more than from evidence I have that they have been up until now. Kevin, what do you think? Yeah, well, that's for sure. Um, I know of a few clubs in Alberta, but they're not closing like because of COVID um, and because of the vaccination restrictions. Uh, you can only go in a curling club and, and a curl if you're fully vaccinated. In a lot of small communities, uh, the percentages aren't like the whole of Alberta. They're, you know, it's more 50-50 or even less than 50-50 in some cases. So then if you only got, say, a two-sheeter and you have 100 members or 80 members and, you, you know, you get a hold of everybody and you find out that, you know, 40 are vaccinated, 40 aren't. Well, can you run the club on 40 members? Maybe not for this year. Okay. So you don't put ice in. You go to the next biggest town and, and everybody kind of curls there. And then you wait till this is done when you can reopen your club. So that's happening a fair amount uh, in Alberta. It's not that clubs are closing completely. It's that just because of the rules in place today, it just doesn't, the math doesn't work very well. You know, earlier in the season, it was pretty soon after there was talk about the utility bills for a lot of these clubs was out of whack. Is that still the case, you guys, that that's what's hurting a lot of these clubs? It's one of the reasons. I, I think taxes and utility bills could be a part of the problem. I think it's deep-seated. There, there's a lot, of, a lot of different issues, and I think it's just the fact of there doesn't seem to be a lot of discussion about what are our issues and how do we get, begin to resolve them. Again, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of curling clubs in this country doing very, very well. And those with any kind of initiative and imagination, uh, they're not hurting at all. But I think in many cases, there's not the probably membership that that you need to make these kind of things happen. And uh, they need help. And I think that uh, the quicker that happens, the better. Well, we're going to talk about that more and more, I'm sure, throughout the year. And uh, let's get out there, folks. Okay, get out there and support your local curling club because uh, it's it's obviously has to start there. Uh, that was Hot Rock Topics. We're going to do it each and every week. Thank you very much to Coyote Tractor. Uh, thanks a lot to those guys. If you want to uh, reach out to us on anything, any of the topics that you've heard, we'd love your comments. You can uh, reach us, email insidecurling at gmail.com. Don't make them too long, though, if you want us to talk about them on the air. So let's get to it. Uh, let's reach into the mailbag. And uh, we've got some interesting thoughts from Sheldon Spear. Uh, he says to us, I enjoy your podcast. Uh, once again, I totally agree with you regarding having the best six teams Playoff to represent Canada, not only for the Olympics, but also for the annual Worlds. However, probably the most reliable method to select amongst these is to have a double round robin, i.e. 10 games, and the team with the best record represents Canada. This would mean a stressful week of curling. Good God, that sounds like a lot. And every game would be meaningful and you rely on overall performance rather than one playoff. If this were known from the start, teams would be totally up for every game and what a week of curling that would be, and may the best team win. That's from Sheldon Spear uh, from BC. 
Uh, who wants to start with this, Kevin? I guess that's one way you could look at it. I guess the problem I would have is that if one of the six teams, you know, or two of the six teams is having a bad start, so they go 0-4, so they're out, basically. You know, like, mathematically, you're going to be gone. So now they're not motivated. Um, so double round robin, that whole second round robin, the team is out already. I don't, I don't know if they're going to be motivated and actually those games actually don't mean anything to the teams that are already sort of done. You're, you know, if it was a tight field and everybody's close, sure, then the games all mean something. So, and then you don't have the TV potential. You could get unlucky in the last round robin game. Teams that are out playing teams that are in. And none of the games actually mean a lot head to head. So I, 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 I think that could be troublesome. I kind of like the trials the way it is, where uh, I don't know about how, having as many teams, but uh, having a semifinal final, having a playoff is really compelling. That final, uh, if we go back a few years where we played Glenn Howard in Edmonton in the final to go to uh, Vancouver. Oh my goodness, it's hard to sleep the night before. Uh, we had 14,000 or 15,000 people in the crowd, minus 52 outside. I don't know if you can beat that. It was, uh, it was crazy intense. I think uh, I would agree with Sheldon. Maybe the fairest way to determine a winner in anything is a round robin. You play every team in the competition and you either win, you either lose, and at the end, whoever won the most games is probably the true winner. There's lots of issues with that, though, because that's the way the Briar was played for 50 years. It worked out pretty well except for two things. Number one, at the end of that round robin, uh, five will get you ten, there's going to be ties. And that tie can be sometimes two, three. It has, has been up to four teams back in the old days. And, of course, you can't schedule that, really. And now you're at the end of the event, and now you've got these tiebreakers. I can remember some of those old briars. It would go on into midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, because it had to be finished that day. The other problem it creates is there's really no television value in that thing at the end of it. And that's the problem. There's no or, or fan interest. And that was proven very well with the Briar and the Scotties, which was in the McDonald Lassie. The last year both of those were played, it was 11-team events, which means one team got a bye in every round. And in both cases, in both the women's and the men's, in the last round of the round robin, the team that actually won was sitting in the stands. They weren't even on the ice. So there's all kinds of complications with that type of an approach. I guess if you were playing it for no concern for television or no concern really for spectators, it works great. But otherwise, I don't think it's probably a good idea in this day and age. Uh, thanks a lot to Sheldon Spear for sending us that email. Uh, you can get a hold of us inside curling at gmail.com. And our mailbag segment is brought to you by Nestle Boost. Up your nutrition game with Boost. Convenient meal replacement drinks with a taste you're guaranteed to love. Okay, fellas, very good so far. Nice full show here. Uh, coming up right now in the house, we've got Tracy Fleury uh, who's going to be on the show. It's brought to you by Goldline. A market leader in curling equipment, Goldline has been creating and selling innovative new curling equipment since 1967 and can be found in curling clubs all over the world. Whether you're just stepping on the ice for the first time, that'll be me shortly, Kev. You told me you'd help me, okay, when I'm... <laughs> When I'm ready to go? Well, sure. We've got to get you on the ice, Jimmy, soon. Whether you're stepping on the ice for the first time or competing for a gold medal, gold line equipment can be found at all levels of play. Let's say hello to Tracy Flurry.
Well, of course, we've been talking about the Masters all show, and uh, God, it was great. You know, it was great to be watching it again. And Kevin, you were good, but you know who was really good? Tracy Flurry. How are you, Tracy? Congratulations. Good. How are you doing? You and I have a connection. I'm from Sudbury, where you're from, and uh, your your club, your home club, was the Idlewild, and uh, I grew up there. I grew up yeah, there. Yeah, that's so. very cool. Such a small world. I, as much time as I spent there, I got kicked out of there many times, though. When, when in my in my drinking days. Uh, uh, anyway, way to go, Tracy. Uh, you must be happy, obviously, with what happened. And uh, tell us quickly about how you did it all. Yeah, we're very excited. Um, it was a great week for us. I think we just played very consistently, um, made the shots when we had to, and uh, just kept things kind of light, and it uh, worked out for us. Yeah, and uh, th- this team, I was asking you, it's not new, but... How long now have you been with these guys? So this is our fourth season together. The other three have curled together for quite a while. um, And then I joined four years ago. You're trying to do all this. Uh, You were talking to us off air with a newborn, relatively new, 15 months old. Yeah, she's 15 months now. So um, I'm still on maternity leave, uh, which does help, but uh, add some extra challenges because uh, she's not in daycare yet. So when I'm traveling... It puts a lot of pressure on my husband uh, back home, um, using a lot of uh, vacation time uh, to take care of the little one. Um, But uh, he does such a great job with it and very grateful for the support. How do you balance the time, Tracy, before Kevin jumps in here with work and baby and and practice time with Curly? How does that work when that most of your team, right? The three of them live in Manitoba, correct? Uh, Yes. So the three girls that... They live um, near each other, so they're able to practice together quite a bit. Um, And then we meet up a little bit to practice together as a team, but not as much as we would like. Um, So often I'm practicing by myself. How do you do that? Explain that. Uh, well, we're just, we just make sure we're communicating with each other so we know exactly what we're all working on. And I do, um, have some, uh, good resources here, some people that I can throw with. So at least I am getting, uh, some feedback when I am practicing. Well, and obviously it's working as the first champion of the of the season. So way, way to go. Uh, Kev, over to you. Well, yeah. Well, congratulations, obviously. Uh, Tracy winning back-to-back Masters is, is terrific. I'd like to ask you a little bit about your thoughts on what this win means from the skipper's point of view as far as your team's momentum, because obviously we're not very far away from the Olympic trials and trying to get to Beijing and to win the first big event only a few weeks before the trials. I, I want to get your thoughts on on what that means to you as the skip trying to uh, get the team confident and ready to go. Yeah, the trials is coming up fast. It's hard to believe it's just next month. Um, but we've been trying to build a season that we think will work best for us. So finding the right mix of competition and practice. Um, so this was our fourth event. And um, yeah, we found a lot of consistency so far this year. We've won three of our four events that we've played in. So it's definitely a good confidence boost heading into the trials. Well, yeah, there's no question about that. And uh, and Chestamere is only only days away <laughs> for the boost national and uh so is that kind of your plan you didn't like you played three events before the slam so that's not a very hectic schedule just a few games and then you play the masters a few days off play the boost national a few days off and away you go so i guess part of it would be play five events from a physical standpoint is that sort of what you're thinking or, or what were you thinking with a fairly limited schedule 
well, we didn't want to feel too busy and uh, feel burned out before the trials. And we also wanted to take a couple weekends. And instead of competing, we wanted to have good training weekends together. So um, every team's different, but we thought that that would be the, the right balance for us. So Tracy, Chelsea Carey has played a role in your team. Last year, when you were unable to play in the events in Calgary, she stepped in and skipped your team. And she's back with you this week as the alternate, and I'm assuming look like coaching as well. So Chelsea is playing out of Saskatchewan this year. Once you get uh, through the trials, if you aren't fortunate enough to win, uh, you're then going to go into the Scotties. And uh, what role is Chelsea going to play in that? Uh, is she still going to be involved with you? Or what's the plan if, if you uh, were to win the Scotties? We actually haven't uh, talked that far ahead, actually. But Chelsea will be coming to the Olympic trials uh, with us. And uh, we just feel so grateful that a player of her caliber was available and she just brings so much to our team. Um, she's a big asset. And we're also lucky to have uh, Sherry Madaw as our coach. So like our bench is stacked. Like we just feel like their experience alone brings us a lot of confidence. Yeah, that's uh, that's a lot of strength. Question about the event last week. There was a new rule put in place and that was the no tick rule for the Eighth end and the extra end, and you certainly experienced that in your final game against Jennifer Jones. What's your thoughts on your first uh, uh, time dealing with this new rule? Yeah, I don't love it, but I i mean, it's one of those rules, like, I, I feel like I could get used to it, um, but I just don't love how, like, it gives advantage to the team that's losing, um, but it does make it more interesting for the spectators, for sure, and... Um, you can get yourself in trouble very quick, as we saw in our eighth end, um, a few misses and the game's on the line very, very quickly. So um, from a spectator perspective, it's interesting. Yeah, it certainly uh, did change things, I think, in that final game with Jennifer Jones. I think the same thing in the men's game. It had quite an impact on what took place there as well. So the World Curling Federation is going to introduce this as a, as a trial rule in the men's and women's worlds this year, but it's a little different. It's for every end. Uh, how do you look at that situation? Do you look at it any differently or do you feel quite the same way as whether it's just the last end or all ends? Uh, same way. Yeah, I'd rather not have that rule, but I think we could get used to it. I'm more opposed to the time per end rule. We had the opportunity to play that at a World Cup event and um, we didn't really enjoy the time per end. So that rule I have a bit of a harder time with. That seems to be a consensus with with a few of the teams that uh, they don't like that in particular. But I guess in many cases, it's going to be hard to tell with either one of them uh, until you're into a situation and, and using it uh, end after end. But um, right now, no one seems to particularly like the the uh, time per end. Um, the other one seems to be really controversial. Let's talk about that. The, uh, the plan to not go into any extra ends in the round robin at the Worlds this year and uh, to settle that in, in shootout to the button. How do you feel about that one? Yeah, not my favorite. I don't love it, but um, I don't think it's horrible. Again, the time per end one bothers me more than that one. I mean, at least it's just the round robin stage. But yeah, I would rather see extra ends in in all games. For us people who who don't play the game, yet we do know uh, there's a there's a lot of talk about rule changes. You know, drop going to eight ends and and you know the timing of ends, et cetera, tick shot and all that. Do you get to voice? Your opinion on these, do you get approached by the WCF or other curling bodies to, uh, for them to ask you about these things when, when it comes time to trying new rules? 
I've never been asked about any rules personally. I don't know if they're asking other athletes, but no, personally, I've, I've never been consulted. I think they should. Do you? Yeah, it would be nice to have some input for sure. I mean, we're the ones most affected by them. So it would be nice to, to at least have our say and feel heard. Anything else you'd like to see changed in the game? Like as far as rules go, I've always had a bit of a pet peeve with rules about burned rocks and just our sport in general, how when there's a violation, there's this onus put on the non-offending team to make decisions. And then it just can get really awkward quick. So yeah, I just like to see maybe some rule changes around burned rocks and violations. Maybe not so penalizing. Is that what you mean? Well, it just, it puts the non-offending team in an awkward spot to decide whether they're going to be sportsmanlike or whether they're going to pull a rock. And there's just no consistency. Some teams pull them, some teams leave them, and then it's just not an equal like field of play. So it's just, it just gets awkward, I find. <laughs> well, you're right. That was, that was incredibly awkward in the Olympics with Rachel Holman after that burnt rock. And then she decided to take it off and she got ripped to through. <laughs> shreds in the in the media and she didn't do a darn thing wrong yeah so. exactly so it bothers me how that kind of pressure is put on a team that <laughs> hasn't done anything wrong <laughs> hasn't done a thing wrong exactly yeah. hey tracy i sure appreciate you you coming on but i wanted to talk a little bit about selena negative in your third in my opinion you know the, the sport has got to give her that in my uh, i think the most improved player she's always been a great curler but you could always kind of count on a, a big miss out of her a few years ago we're kind of out of the blue she'd miss something that you wouldn't be missing that doesn't happen anymore can you maybe if there's i don't know if there's some training thing that she's doing different or or whatever, but she's just turned into a, just a brilliant third. Has there been something that she's done that's just really changed her game around? Because it just seems to be a, a whole complete player now. She is an excellent player, uh, very well-rounded. She's got all the shots. I think she just works really hard. She's on the ice a lot. And I think just the more experience she gets playing in big games and finals, and she's just really grown to embrace those um, big high pressure moments. Yeah. And has just become a superstar. You know, uh, the, probably the, the best line call I've seen in years happened in your eighth end. And you weren't saying a word, which is amazing because well, I don't know. If, I don't think anybody in the building knew what to do, but I really appreciate that uh, Selena took control of that, of that stone completely and yelled at the sweeper. And it was funny when she was yelling at the sweepers, the sweepers actually thought that you, you needed it to carve to get to, the, to actually chip out this one stone in the forefoot. And she yelled l loudly, no, 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 straight, like straight. And, and then they, they caught on to what was going on. They hammered that thing to save that rock so that you chipped off the side one and took it to an extra end to win. I'd, I'd love to hear from behind your eyes as you're going down the sheet and you hear her yelling and then you go, oh, she's right. Yes, yeah, yeah, get it off the side one. I definitely thanked her for uh, that uh, quick decision-making. Yeah, she did a, a great job seeing that. And um, I think it just shows like how important line calling is in our sport. Um, it can make a, a huge difference at times. And uh, yeah, you have to always stay with every rock uh, no matter what. Well, I was sort of going a different way with it. I was thinking more of the communication because – 
you, a lot of times when you have a pressure, sh- well, huge pressure shot, obviously, uh, in the eighth end of a major final, and you've got the skip yelling, the thirds yelling, the, the sweepers won't know what to do. My point was that that rock's going down the sheet in one of the biggest shots you'll throw in your life, and you weren't saying anything. Selena had control. The sweepers listened to her. It was like a well-oiled machine. Most curling teams would have screwed that up because both would have been yelling and the sweepers couldn't have heard. So I'd like to hear just a bit of your team chemistry as to how in the heck you ever were able to not yell like I would have and let your third completely own that stone and, there, and, and of course, in the end, make the shot and win the championship. Like It's, it's a huge moment, in, in my opinion. Yeah, I think um, we do tend to listen to the person in the house a bit more on some of those line calls. Um, so uh, Selena was ready and saw it. And the sweepers, they also stayed close to the rock. So that was good for them, too. And uh, yeah, I got away with one. We were definitely very fortunate. <laughs> you did get away with one. <laughs> well, that's OK. Hey, at the end of the game, there's no pictures on the scorecards. Tracy, let's talk about you as a curler uh, yourself, how it all started. Uh, I, I always love to hear from uh, these, you know, the high performance athletes uh, like yourself. Uh, walk us through it. Was it always going to be curling for you when you were young, when, when you started? And at what point did you realize I, I can make a run at this? I can do this full time or, uh, or certainly play at the, at the highest level. Tell us about that. Well, I think in juniors, we more just played because we enjoyed the sport, it was more just for fun um, and the experience and uh, had the opportunity to play in a few Canadian juniors. Um, and then after juniors, it seemed like the focus was more on school, but still trying to um, play a little bit of, of curling on the side. And uh, we didn't have big goals right out of juniors. Like it was more just play a bit, try to get to Ontario Scotties and try to do well there. And then um, a few years later, it's like, oh, we won the Ontario Scotties. And then I think at that point we realized, oh, we could be a competitive team. And um, yeah, and so that was kind of our, our breakthrough is making it to our first Scotties. How old were you when you threw your first stone? Yeah, I, I started in uh, the Little Rocks program uh, here at the Idlewild in, Sud- in Sudbury. And I was five. Five. So it's almost time for Nina to get started. She's uh... yeah, yeah, never too soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, talk about the Olympics for a moment because coming up on the horizon here in less than three weeks is the Canadian trials to go to Beijing. You're currently ranked number one in the world. You're going into a playoff that's going to involve eight teams beside yourselves. How do you feel about that whole situation as far as the current system that's used and the timing of it? We seem to be getting an impression from a number of people. They might like to see the trials played in the spring versus November where it's currently positioned. What are your thoughts? I don't mind the timing uh, where it is right now. I mean, you're going to, you know, you're going to have a team that's playing really well. But that being said, I've never gone through the experience of winning the trials and then having the tight turnaround of the Olympics. So I think until you've experienced that, it's kind of hard to to weigh in on um, how that would feel. Warren was talking, and Kevin and myself earlier in the uh, in the show about uh, curling clubs. Some are shutting down, which seems to be a concern. Tell us about what's going on in Sudbury curling wise. Is it growing? Is there concern with clubs clo- uh, closing or not? How's your club doing? Uh, and the, and the rest of the curling scene in Sudbury. Yeah, it is concerning uh, to see uh, clubs closing, and my home club um, that I curled at since I was five. 
they uh, are actually considering getting rid of curling. They're also a golf club. So there's talks about just focusing on the golf going forward. So there's one more year of curling as a trial. Um, and then they're going to see where to go from there. But yeah, it's sad. There's a lot of history, a lot of curling history at that club. But that being said, there's also a couple other really great curling clubs in Sudbury. So uh, I won't be without ice or support, but it, it is sad to see uh, curling clubs shutting down. And why are they doing that? Is it is it because of COVID that like some of these clubs probably just got wiped out because of COVID and they couldn't survive? Yeah, it didn't help. And they're just wondering about like revenue streams and just from like a business perspective, if there's better use of the space that could bring in more revenue for the club. Well, uh, Tracy, listen, thanks very much for doing this. Uh, we appreciate it. You're probably up early anyway. How's your daughter? Does she get you up early? Uh, around 7 a.m. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm yuck. used to it. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations again. Thanks very much for doing this. And uh, we'll be watching for you all season. Uh, and if we, we don't talk to you before, then good luck in the trials and good luck with all the other slam events that are coming up. Take it easy, Tracy. Thanks so much. Bye. Well, Kev, uh, you asked her who she needs to uh, worry about. Uh, going down the road with other teams, but I'm suspect Kevin that the other teams are saying Tracy Flurry is someone to worry about. Well, yeah, when you come off a big champion rank number one, I think uh, if you can't find the person in the room you're worried about, <laughs> you're it, and that's perfect. And you know what, uh, Joan McCusker on on the uh, broadcast Sportsnet broadcast always said that. Uh, for quite a few years, Tracy Flurry she was kind of sneaky good, where she'd come up and beat you out of the blue. She's not like that anymore. She's just good. <laughs> she's just she's just really really good uh one of the best players in the world right now and there's just no question about it Warren uh you know you've been around a long time some of the greats in the in the sport have talked about maybe kids shouldn't be starting so young and yet you hear from Tracy you know she threw her first stone at five years old what do you say Warren about someone who's you know wants to curl wants to take a run at it what age Warren should they start to get serious about it I think whenever a child is attracted to the sport, and I think a parent needs to probably expose them to as many things as, they, things as they can. I can remember my own situation. That was a different era. I mean, when I was first uh, experiencing curling as a, just a spectator, as maybe eight, nine years old, I couldn't even go inside the ice area, never mind throw a rock. And I was counting the years. I think I was told I had to be 14 before I could go out on the ice. And uh, I wanted to so dearly, probably at the ages of 10, 11, 12, just to go out and try and throw that rock, and I, I wasn't allowed to. So I think as soon as a child shows some interest in something, you should have the opportunity to let them try to experience. So I think that's a good thing. What made you so wise? I love that answer. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, not only that, but uh, you are a historian. And uh, one of our segments that we're going to uh, keep doing going forward with the show, uh, we're calling Story Time and uh, today, Warren, you're going to talk about how the Olympics uh, and curling in the Olympics all came about. Uh, that coming up next. Thanks a lot to Tracy Fleury, and thank you to our uh, sponsor of In the House. Uh, we really appreciate it. And that's Goldline. Okay, it's time for story time, brought to you by Meridian Manufacturing. We want to thank those guys for stepping up and sponsoring the show. They are your industrial and on-farm storage and handling partners and proud sponsor of the Grand Slam of Curling. This week, Warren, it's an Olympic year. Uh, so I think we should start a discussion on how curling became an Olympic sport, and you would know all about that. 
uh, you were involved with this uh, and know how it all started. And you've written a book about it, Warren. Yes, uh, the book I've written is called Sticks and Stones, and it's sort of a history of what was happening in the curling world between 1975 and 1992, which the Olympic aspect was a key key focus through the, a lot of that period of time. And my book tells you about the good t- things and the bad things. There were a lot of crazy things happened during that point in time that maybe impacted the whole thing negatively, but uh, I put it all together in about 350 pages, and hopefully it's going to be able to hit the market by the middle of December. Okay, we can't wait for that to come out. Uh, uh, Warren, so tell us how it all started and became an Olympic sport. It's it's a fairly lengthy story, Jim, but let me go back into the barrels of time and talk about the late 70s. And a guy in Calgary by the name of Ray Kingsmith, who was secretary of the Southern Alberta Curling Association and was a I think a visionary for the sport very much, and he saw a lot of things in the potential of curling, and and so did I as to where it could go. Ray had actually been involved in operating a fairly major bond spiel in Calgary for a number of years, him and another guy by the name of Norm Osman called actually the Masters. And they ran an event for about five years, and it was very successful, but kind of petered away. But he had a lot of thoughts of what curling could become, as did I. So we talked a lot about that. And we even talked about how could curling maybe someday become an Olympic sport. But we weren't sure how that could take place, but we talked about it. Interesting enough, in 1981, in September, in Baden-Baden, West Germany, it was announced that Calgary would host the 1988 Winter Olympics. And I think everybody was excited about that. Ray and I talked a bit about it, but we didn't really motivate uh, anything to happen at that period of time until probably August of 1982, when I phoned him one day and said, have you got any news or any idea what we can do to maybe try and get curling into Calgary as a demo sport? And his response was, no, I don't, but I will will try to find out. So we talked again about uh, two or three weeks later, and he made contact with a a gentleman by the name of Brian Murphy at the uh, Calgary Olympic Organizing Committee, and he was the vice president of sports. And uh, he had a chat with Brian, and he said it was very informative and, and uh, was kind of to the point. And, and in that discussion that Brian had suggested to him, that besides curling, there were other sports that were looking at becoming demos in Calgary. Uh, amongst them, ski orienting, freestyle skiing, short track speed skating, sled dogging, and ballroom dancing. And so with curling coming into the mix, there would be five sports. And he wasn't sure at that point in time how many would be even approved by the Calgary Committee, never mind the IOC. They knew two for sure, but they were maybe hoping now that curling was interested, three. So it was left at that. And uh, a meeting was set up with Brian Murphy, Ray Kingsmith, and I. And it was actually, I remember this day in infamy because it was Pearl Harbor Day, but also it was a day, December 7th, 1982, that we met at the Weston Hotel in Calgary for breakfast where this all was laid out before us by Brian Murphy. And uh, he indicated that there was going to be a need for us to do a presentation to the OCO committee at some point in time in 1983, and uh, all five sports would be given an opportunity to make a pitch, and other than that, there would be recommendations made to the first the OCO executive and then finally to the IOC. Uh, In June of 83, Ray received a very detailed questionnaire Uh, from Murphy about everything that was going to be required. And in that, he indicated that on August 22nd, uh, we'd be called upon to make a presentation to the executive board of the organizing committee. He told us that the presentation would be verbal and and should outline, interesting enough, why should curling be a demonstration sport? What would it do for the games locally and internationally? And would the financial returns from curling in the Olympics be significant now and into the future? 
At that point in time, there was a guy by the name of Bob Moyer that was executive producer at CBC for Curling. And I contacted him, and Bob worked with me in putting together a very informative video uh, documenting Curling's history uh, with regard to television and some of the things they thought it could do. On the 27th, 22nd of August, uh, Ray and I were supposed to make our presentation, but he got called out of town on an emergency uh, with business. And so all of a sudden, I had to do this presentation by myself to the OCO committee regarding Curling's potential inclusion in 1988. It went pretty well. And uh, it was near the end of September when we were advised that the OCO committee had officially accepted short track speed skating, freestyle skiing, and curling, but it now had to go to the IOC for their blessing and, uh, and agreement. And finally, by the end of October, uh, we did finally get advice from the IOC that uh, curling was going to be accepted along with freestyle skiing and short track. From that point, the Canadian Curling Association and International Curling Federation, which later became the WCF, had to be informed and became involved. And so we went through the process of that all happening that finally took place in an official matter in the spring of 1986 when the ICF officially endorsed it, determined that the playoff would involve seven men's teams and seven women's teams. And from that point on, uh, everything went forward and we went forward with the organization that uh, finally resulted in curling being demoed in Calgary in 1988, which of course was just really the beginning of the story. There's uh, an awful lot that took place through this entire period of time, good and bad, and it was certainly a struggle to say the least. Well, we, we got to thank you. I didn't realize you were that big of, of, of a big shot. Holy man. And you ended up doing it alone. That couldn't have been too fun when the time came. How long was the presentation? I think I, I think I was in there about 30 minutes because I did the presentation. Then, of course, they put forward a number of questions that they wanted to have answers to. But you see, the way things were working back then, it was it was a very different situation. The International Curling Federation on their own really couldn't put it forward to the IOC. It had to come from a organizing committee. So if the Calgary committee didn't agree to put that forward to the IOC, it wasn't going to be accepted. And... Uh, then Canadian Curling Association really couldn't get involved either. It had to come from the Calgary Committee. So it was a very different uh, period of time as to how this all had to take place. I should also add that curling, it wasn't the first attempt for curling to be in the Olympics. When the Olympics started in 1924, curling was actually a medal sport in the first ever Olympics held in 1924. Uh, it appeared again in 1928. And uh, for the last time prior to 88, it was actually in 1932, in Lake Placid, and it uh, basically only involved teams from the USA and Canada, but uh, in both 28 and 32, it was demonstration, but actually 1924, it was a full medal sport. So it had been there before, but then it disappeared. So uh, it was a struggle to try and get this all to take place. Once again, your book is uh, Sticks and Stones. It's coming out uh, in a couple of months, and uh, we'd like to thank uh, Meridian for sponsoring Storytime. I like it. You'll have something each and every week. Uh, Inside Curling is reaching out to curling clubs. Uh, if you'd like to do a Zoom call with us, we've done several of these, and uh, the clubs loved it. Uh, you can get a hold of us, inside, uh, insidecurling at gmail.com, and we'll set that up for you. It's cool. Uh, Kevin and Warren, the, the ones we've done, you spend a good hour with these clubs. So if you'd like to do that, get a hold of us. We'd also like to thank Rod Paulson and his company, In-House Strategies. He's doing all the great things on our social media group. And again... You can send us uh, anything you want, insightcurling at gmail.com. Coming up next week, we'll have a rundown of what you need to know for the Boost National 
Uh, and November 2nd to the 7th will be the uh, Boost National at the Chestermere Recreation Center in Chestermere, Alberta, which is just outside of Calgary, right, Kev? Just a few minutes? Yeah, 15 minutes outside, 10 minutes. Yep. We're going to have coverage of that event, including our preview podcast, along with uh, Kevin and Warren's favorites for next week. So stay tuned for that one. Fellas, good job. Well done. Uh, You've been listening to another episode of Inside Curling with you, Kevin Martin, and Warren Hanson, the two Hall of Famers. Take it easy, boys. Have a good week. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jim. 